Chapter Four, Part One of Find the Woman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Find the Woman by Gillette Burgess. Chapter Four, Part One. The Liars Club. How our amateur adventurer fell a victim to his own inexperience, was relieved of his treasure, and fell in with a precious company. Fully convinced of the truth of this extraordinary woman's tale, and with all the chivalry of a romantic youth, aroused john fenton set out to restore the jewels with his overcoat pockets still clumsy with the treasure he left sheffel hall and went out into a chilly misty night intent upon his adventurous errand what danger lay in wait he did not know nor care he was no longer a poor unknown draughtsman he was a knight-errant bent upon the rescue of imperilled honour the city had become of a sudden strange mysterious every shadow was a suggestion of malice so he walked hurriedly along eighteenth street to the subway entrance once he turned round and saw two men following him he increased his speed the lights of the glazed entrance promised a safe haven his haste however brought disaster at the entrance a step was raised a scant inch from the bricks of the sidewalk upon that low projection his toe caught and he fell sprawling hitting his forehead upon the iron plate and as he fell his overloaded pockets disgorged jewelry and precious stones all about him for a moment he lay there stunned only half conscious the next thing he knew two men were helping him to rise his head was buzzing blood was dripping from his face he would have fallen again but for their assistance in another moment he smelt the sickish odor of chloroform and he lost consciousness for a moment before he went off voices sounded strangely in his ears and his half-opened eyes caught sight of mangus o'shea supporting him he was too dazed even to realize his danger when he regained partial use of his senses he was walking still supported by the two men he could scarcely support his own weight and they held him up by sheer strength of arm he caught a few words there's a stable round the corner i'll get a cab and we'll take him to it was mangus o'shea who was speaking then as in a dream he walked on tottering it seemed to last for hours that horrible journey slowly began to revive and started to protest hist he's coming round again said another voice give him another whiff a damp handkerchief was held hard to his nostrils for a few seconds he struggled weakly and went back into oblivion so alternately walking and dozing off again trying to shake himself free as from some awful nightmare he was dragged on and on and on the next thing he knew he was in a cab this time he had wit enough not to show signs of reviving but sat huddled between two men listening his pockets were being deliberately rifled o'shea was filling his own with the spoil as he talked to peter stowe's loft he was saying peter won't be there to-night he'll be at the club telling his fool stories we can make a good getaway take his pants off and he'll stay a while we'll divvy up at the norcross and catch the first boat over the pond then an indiscreet movement of fenton's head attracted the notice of his captors the chloroform handkerchief was pressed firmly to his nose again and fenton knew no more he awoke he had no idea how long afterward 
with chilled legs to find himself lying on his back, sick with nausea, his trousers missing. He was in some dark place and could see nothing except at one side a row of dim spots that were from time to time obliterated, one by one, and reappeared again like holes in the dark, admitting the merest trace of light. He was not out of doors, though the floor he lay on felt as if covered with gravel. There was a close, unfamiliar smell in his nostrils, and in his ears a confused noise like cooing, a low, persistent, guttural sound he could not at first explain. So soon as his brain cleared, he made out, by the fluttering of wings back and forth, and the peep of chicks, that he was in some sort of a large dovecote or pigeon-house. Every little while he felt a sharp peck at his bare legs, and feathers brushed his face. He reached out his hand cautiously, felt a bird slip away from him, and his hand fell upon some small eggs, still warm from the mother. He lay there a while longer in wonderful discomfort, trying to puzzle out his situation. As the nausea wore off, he arose, and stumbling over pigeons and smashing eggs at every step, groped his way toward the light. The windows were too small for him to see anything outside. He started to explore the garret. Bang! He suddenly fell, just escaping being precipitated into a hole in the floor, square like the opening for a ladder, though no ladder was there. He thanked his lucky stars that he had only barked his shins, and rubbed them till he found they were sticky, whether with blood or broken eggs. He could not in the darkness be sure. No light came from the trap in the floor. All he could see about him were vague forms that flitted to and fro. All he could hear was the monotonous, brooding murmur of doves. There seemed no escape till someone came. He shouted aloud, shouted again and again, waited and listened. His overcoat was gone, and the pockets of his coat had been rifled. He found a single match. Lighting it, he gave one glance about which revealed nothing more than his imagination had pictured. Hundreds of pigeons on the floor, on the rafters, flying hither and yon. He was trying to devise some means of escape, yelling with all his might. Meanwhile, when a light flickered in the hole below him and a voice came up to him, Who's there? Fenton stuck his head through the trap and discerned a spectacled old man with scrawny beard, holding a lantern and looking up at him, mouth agape in wonder. Let me out, for heaven's sake, Fenton cried. Who the devil are you, anyway, up in my pigeon coat? Come up and I'll explain. I've been drugged and left here, by robbers. You're drunk, said the old man, holding the lantern above his head. Then, chuckling inanely, he walked off to return with a ladder, which he lifted to the trap. Fenton protested volubly against the accusation, and with exclamatory eloquence described what had taken place after having left the restaurant. The old man still laughed as he climbed up. Fenton grew more vehement, but his tale was incredible. The old man sat down on the floor with his feet on the ladder and roared till he wept. I say, he shouted, I know where you belong, and there you go, too, and that's the Liars Club, right away. That story will get the prize tonight, all right. Robbed, eh? Pockets full of diamonds and rubies and truck. Fine. Say, by the time we get down there, you can touch that tail up a bit 
and make it hum. Never drunk in your life, then. Say, you certainly must have been up against some merry jags this evening. Well, I like a practical joke as well as anyone, provided it ain't on me. Come on down, and I'll have you initiated right away. But I've got to hurry up to Harlem, Fenton insisted. I must give notice right away that the jewels have been stolen. You're coming with me to the Liars Club first, the old man repeated. What the devil is that? Fenton wondered if he had to do with a crazy man. Oh, just a crowd of good fellows that meet every night to swap yarns, that's all. We have to tell a tale apiece, lies or truth, it don't matter, so long as the story's good. Only no one can peep about anything afterward. That's the only rule. That and no newspaper men. Because why? Some of our stories come pretty near being the truth, not like this fairy tale of yours, and he poked Fenton in the ribs. Well, I have no time for fooling around. I don't care how much fun you have. You must get me a hat and a pair of trousers somewhere, and let me go. Not a bit of it. Don't you think of it. The old man grew surly. You come with me, or you go out half naked, whichever suits you best. But if you're a good fellow and don't make trouble, I'll see if I can't get you something to cover your legs. And so saying, he went down the ladder. Fenton had no desire to go abroad upon the street in his present condition. A combination of blood and bird's eggs had streaked his shins with scarlet and yellow. The droppings upon the floor of the garret had left his coat a sight for mirth. Moreover, he found he had no hat and no money. He picked his way down the ladder, therefore, in no jubilant frame of mind, but determined to make the best of his situation. Perhaps some of the members of this extraordinary club would take his tale seriously. But, willy-nilly, there was nothing to do but follow his chuckling guide. Peter Stowe, the pigeon-fancier, led the way down a flight of stairs, and through a door in the rickety partition abruptly into the next stable loft. A whoop of laughter greeted his entry as Fenton found himself in a large room filled with tobacco smoke, roughly fitted up with straw chairs and a long table. About a keg of beer in the corner, a group of men turned in amazement to see his ridiculous figure, and came forward to make a hilarious inspection of him. The pigeon fancier introduced him. Gents, here's the prize, live liar of the evening, captured after a hard struggle in my pigeon loft, making omelettes and murdering my squabs. I say keep his story till the last, cause why? It's dead sure for the prize. He turned to Fenton and exhibited him as if he were a curiosity. Gentlemen, I've been robbed, Fenton exclaimed angrily. I appeal to you to give me assistance. Don't spoil the point of the story, cried the old man. I had a fortune of precious stones in my pockets. I've been captured and drugged. A heavy, horsey-looking man with a square jaw in a striped sweater stepped forward and laid a massive hand on Fenton's shoulder. See here, kiddo. You follow instructions, see? They's enough of us here to handle you all right if you kick up a row. You'll have your chance in good time. Sit down in that chair and have a mug of beer and a pipe. Now then, boys, we'll have another story. Seeing by the cynical faces that further objections would be useless, Fenton sat down and hid his bare legs under the table. Beer was set in front of him and tobacco offered. 
it was evident now he had time to observe the crowd that the meeting had been interrupted by his advent so he decided to make the best of it and watch his chance for escape the man addressed as the next speaker was a merry-looking red-faced man of forty with a patch over one eye by his fat stomach and his tinted nose he had apparently once lived well and at the expense of others fenton labelled him as a second-rate gambler or confidence man now out of the running his voice was good-natured and easy he stuffed his hands in his pockets stared at the president with his good eye and proceeded to tell with winks and chuckles his story the time of his life my mother's cousin was in town last sunday seventy-two years old and never been in new york lives down on cape cod keeps a sort of tavern for summer boarders runs a general merchandise store lets cat-boats and horses the main henry b manager of the town of barnstable he came up to have the time of his life at seventy-two can you beat it i used to know uncle jerdon when i was a boy he was postmaster then in the days when there was so little mail that he could read off the names of all the letters morning and evening beginning with hulda hoxey and ending with jeremiah philpotts all done nowadays the whole town is full of summer folks and the natives pick em good and plenty while the weather lasts uncle jerdon was a deacon in the methodist church and always led the experience meetings with telling how big a sinner he used to be but lord everybody knew he'd never done anything worse than swear at his old blue mare when she wanted to stop at the watering trough go long thee darned old slut was his idea of profanity you see his folks brought him up to be a quaker and early influence stuck well those experiences he used to make up were the only outlet for as good a little streak of hellishness as any man ever had they were the only chance he had to make good as a sport and it kind of got on his nerves i remember going down to barnstable for a vacation once a couple of years after i'd moved to new york say the old man's questions would have made you yelp he knew no more about life than a brooklyn baby but he made it up in curiosity i recall how he used to take me into a corner behind the shoe counter and ask me jared did thee ever go on a bust and what i hadn't done i had to invent the same as him lord i made myself out a red-hot hellion for his benefit i liked the old man well he talked with all the drummers that came along asked about the tenderloin and the theatres and masked balls he took a particular fancy to masked balls did the old man and all the sporty eating-houses in this old burg the drummers must have strung him good and plenty when i saw him next he seemed to have an idea that millionaires skated down broadway in dominoes and red masks and artists models in scant attire rioted on the trolley-cars madison square garden to him was something like the three-ringed palace of nebuchadnezzar or who's this that built the tower of babylon in sodom or was it gomorrah he was dying to see a real gambler well 
leading such a confounded virtuous life in Barnstable that it got on his nerves, he figured it out that he'd just got to have one good fling at real life in the metropolis to get it out of his blood, and then settle down to the catboats and prayer meetings and clams and be good forever after. They's nothing for itching like scratching, and he'd never be satisfied till he'd had his time. So he started to sow his belated wild oats crop with the cunning of a bank cashier contemplating a trip to Morocco. He squared his insurance and his mortgage debts, laid in a good stock of doodads for the summer trade, bought his wife a new silk dress, and filled in details all along the line till they wasn't a duty undone nor a debt unpaid. Meanwhile, little by little, he began to salt away the coin for the trip to the great city. Boston wasn't half wicked enough for him, Lord, no. He was going to do it big and fling his hard-earned money into the great white way. So he scrimped and saved for pretty near three years, and in that time he scraped up a thousand dollars, which was what the drummers had told him a good spender would need for one week in Gotham. On top of that, he had to collect enough for the trip back and forth, something like fifty dollars. Ain't that the beginning of a bumper crop of adventure? Can you see that old hypocrite singing psalms every Sunday and Thursday night and reading the police gazette behind the counter in between times? I say, when I met him at the train, I near laughed my head off. If you can imagine a healthy sixteen months infant calling for cocktails and smoking a Carolina Perfecto at the Hoffman House bar, you'll understand how it struck me. Well, he wanted me to show him the sights, no limit, and him to pay all the expenses. If he didn't have the time of his life, I certainly was going to. Well, he blew in on a Saturday night, and feeling a little groggy myself, I induced him to turn in at the La Marquette Hotel and said I'd call around next forenoon and not to do anything rash till he saw me. It was all I could do to hold him in. He wanted to do Chinatown right away that night, see Chuck Connors do a roof garden and see somebody shot and go on a joy ride with chorus girls. Finally I persuaded him to go in and take a long breath before he jumped into the gaiety of city life. But it'll be Sunday, says he. They ain't no such thing as Sunday in New York, I told him. They ain't had a Sunday for forty years, and I believed it. A lot I knew about it, rounder as I was. Well, you don't always know how the other half lives. Live and learn. I slept late that night and didn't get round to the hotel till about one o'clock next day, Sunday. There he was in the lobby, with a big carpet-bag and a face like a drowning horse. Buncoed? Well, yes, but you'll never guess how. This is what happened. He had got up at about six a.m., like all hayseeds, and went down to the newsstand in his slipper feet for a morning paper. Then who did he run into? Bang! But the Methodist minister who had preached at Barnstable four years before. A Reverend Willie it was, and Uncle Jerdon simply couldn't get away. He said he was on business, buying boats or something, but the Reverend insisted he'd got to go to church with him that morning. They was no visible way out of it. 
with Uncle Jurdan's pious reputation and so, cursing inside, he pulled his Sunday face and trotted along, clean over to Brooklyn. Wasn't that rubbing it in? It was a clean, red-brick church they went to, with a new minister who was crazy on foreign missions. And at the end, after the sermon, just before the contribution, the minister turned himself loose to persuade money out of stingy pockets. Just think of it, he says, one dollar will provide red calico enough to cover the nakedness of twelve of our heathen sisters. One dollar will buy toothbrushes enough for a whole savage tribe in the South Seas. One dollar will provide a Bible to convert a cannibal king, and one dollar will buy a marriage certificate for poor pagans who have previously lived in sinful polygatude. He got the house. Misers who had never put in a dime before sweetened up the plate. Uncle Jordan had to make good. It cost him a pang to spend a cent for the Lord on this trip. This was his time with his long-lost cousin, the devil. But he dipped into his pocket, and thinking a dollar would make a good show, threw a bill into the plate. The deacon counted the contribution while the congregation sang from Greenland's icy mountains to India's coral strand. There was a hush while the audience rubbered. Then the treasurer of the church tiptoed up with them religious squeaky shoes to the pulpit and whispered behind his hand to the minister. The minister got up, coughed, and rolled his eyes to heaven. Beloved brethren, he said, the Lord hath moved us in wondrous manner this day, and has shed his blessing upon our efforts. The sum collected at the contribution is one thousand and twenty-five dollars and thirty-one cents. The Lord be praised. Amen from the congregation, and everybody looked at everybody else to see if Carnegie or Rockefeller was there in disguise. Uncle Jordan was as puzzled as anybody till he put his hand into his vest pocket and felt for the unbroken thousand-dollar bill he had put aside to spend on the primrose path. It wasn't there. He had put it into the plate, thinking it was the one-dollar bill he had left from his traveling expenses. Can you beat it? And the man with the patch on his eye reached into his hip pocket for a well-gnawed plug of tobacco and took a plenteous bite. The roars of laughter had not subsided before the big president rose with a surly face and pointed dramatically across the table to where a young man sat in the shadow of the lamp, his chair tilted back against the partition. He had a chubby face with a huge, good-natured mouth, and had been puffing incessantly during the recital, as if he wished to conceal himself behind a cloud of smoke. A couple of boxes emptied of their Havana cigarettes, and the butts of some two dozen on the floor testified to his industry. Now everyone turned to look at him. He stared back at them without embarrassment. Who is that chap? demanded the president. I never saw him here before. Oh, this is Jack Richmond, said a thin cadaverous-looking youth with a chauffeur's cap, who had been coughing behind his hand. Friend of mine. He's all right, I guess. Met up with him at a moving picture show. Want to hear my yarn? He's a reporter, thundered the president. I can tell by the shape of his head. 
Whenever you see a chap with a long egg shaped cocoa that hangs over behind, you can bet he writes for the papers. Rats, said the chauffeur. Richmond's all right, I guess. But before he had finished, the massive president strode over to the suspicious character, took hold of the lapel of his coat, and threw it open. With a quick movement, he snatched a card from the young man's vest. Look at that, he yelled. What did I tell you? The morning item. Reporter's card. Now get out of here. Against the bylaws to have newspaper men present. These stories don't get into print, if I know it. He shook his heavy hand in the young man's face. Will you leave easy or hard? I think, said the chubby young man, rising hastily and drawing on a soft hat, I'll say good-bye while the walking is good. I apologize for having that card. It was lent me by a friend to get inside the fire lines while my own house and family was burning up alive last night. But, of course, being a liar's club, I have no place here, and the plain unvarnished truth is at a discount. I'm a victim of circumstantial evidence. Good day, gents. St. Ananias guide thee, and he made his exit, two feet ahead of the toe of the president's brogan. Say, that's a shame, said the thin young chauffeur, scratching his head. We lost a peach of a good story when he threw him out, I'll bet. I'll have to hump myself if I want to make up for it. My turn next, ain't it? If you've got anything on your chest, the president announced affably, this here's the time to cough it off. My text is the psychological rule of three, said the chauffeur. Say, this ain't no browning club, objected the pigeon fancier. No browning sharp could ever explain the psychology of three consecutive coincidences, said the youth. It's a case for Henry James. Is he a member? asked the ex-gambler. I never heard of him. What is he, a chauffeur or what? He is a literary chauffeur, as you have guessed, and he always exceeds the speed limit. When he comes in next, I'm going to put it up to him straight. Why is it that no man can stand three strokes of lightning without expecting a fourth? I'll put it another way. When a man has three bad lucks running, he'll manufacture the fourth himself in trying to escape what he considers inevitable. Faster, kid, faster. Your act is flopping. Steer out of the tall word contest and harness on to your pet prevarication. I'll do it, said the thin one. Take it from me, the only living gasoline eater who never eloped with a rich man's wife. I'm telling you the unenameled truth. I've got a tail with a wallop. This is a song of my brother's submerged E-flat luck. I'm reminded of the trilogy of sad events by the announcement in today's papers of the death of a young swell named Brewster who blew his brains out yesterday on account of losing his wad backing a bandy-legged mule named Belcharmian. Fenton looked up in amazement. Surely the name of Brewster was familiar. Then the other name rang queerly in his ears. He thought of the picture in his pocket. Bell C.H. Could Charmian, by any streak of chance, be the name of his dream girl? He began to tremble. He could not take his eyes from the chauffeur's face as the thin young man, coughing between sentences, told to the circle about him his story. The Rule of Three 
My brother Bill had been running a hog ranch near Temple, Arizona. Despite the fact that this particular town is ten degrees hotter than the boiling lava of Vesuvius, he had prospered sufficiently to retire a year ago with a bankroll of eleven thousand dollars with the wad and a hunger for something to eat better than canned peaches cactus and bull durham tobacco he pulled up stakes for chicago spent a couple of days in the annex bar and hit the trail for the big noise at the mouth of the hudson when it came time for him to quit the buffet car and hunt his mat he moseyed back through the train until he came to a sleeper named belcharmion in it he had lower berth number three a fact which may or may not be significant upon awakening in the morning he tried to negotiate some eight dollars worth of ham and eggs with a grapefruit on the side but was attacked with a violent nausea he retired to the observation car and remained there shivering and shaking with ague until the flyer rolled into new york then piling into a taxicab he told the driver to take him to the nearest hospital the doctors analyzed him hurriedly pronounced his trouble a sort of cross between typhoid and the bubonic plague clapped him into bed in ward number three and there he remained for three weeks three separate and distinct times he would have died but for the thought of the pink-haired nurse and his bankroll it's a pity he didn't take the count then and there he would have missed a lot of trouble on the third of may the doctors declared him graduated and with seventy four hundred dollar notes in his wallet he wobbled to the exit where he collided with a weak-eyed quick whose shaky legs and shop-worn appearance stamped him as a fellow convalescent just getting well says bill Yep says the live dishrag where you bound for says bill again me for the racetrack says the other leaning against the elevator shaft and panting for ozone the docks have all my coin but i'm good for a marker and before the last goat comes rompin home to the paddock my pants is goin to be lined with yellowbacks or it's me for a brodie into the brine Bill hungered for excitement enough to hire a benzine buggy, and together the two cripples went to the racetrack. In the first race, Bill backed a hagen horse named Tatters and spilled a hundred. In the second, a skate named Melon Boy went to pieces in the stretch and stung my brother twelve hundred dollars. Bill was feeling blue, but his friend was talking pert. He was a couple of centuries ahead and together they walked into the paddock to take a squint at the ponies and jocks that were getting ready for the third race see that swell girl there with the black plumes the big eyes the parasol and the aristocratic ankles that's miss charmion a society pet says the little fellow who was so weak he could hardly stand they's a zebra in this race named after her belle charmion's the filly and young brewster the son of the millionaire owns the beast suffer in spanish mackerel thinks bill typhus fever in birth three of a sleeping car named belcharmion miss belcharmion on the third of may and a horse named belcharmion in the third race what's the answer 
the bell sounded and everybody started to run toward the grandstand or betting ring bill waited long enough to take another look at the filly then hustled for the ring as fast as his bum legs would carry him bell charmion was favorite at three to five removing a single hundred dollar note from his roll and sticking it in an inside pocket bill handed the entire remainder five thousand two hundred dollars to a greasy-faced bookie got a card showing that he played the filly across the board and went out on the lawn to hold his breath they got away in a bunch and swung round the track so fast that bill couldn't see which was ahead coming into the stretch ten million people commenced to pound each other on the head and yell come on you belcharmian oh you belcharmian and bill knew his nag was in the lead a hundred yards from the finish just as the leaders were right in front of bill the filly stumbled turned a double somersault slid into the fence and killed her jockey my brother crumpled up on the grass when he came to somebody had frisked him for the hundred and he was flat broke in a strange land he hunted up his hospital friend who slipped him a wad of sympathy a five-case note and his address come round and sleep in my folding bed said he bill said he would the address was a hundred and twelve east twenty-sixth street and at six o'clock that night bill after a fifteen-cent meal at child's and a ride on the third avenue l finally located the place and half dead with weakness and a grouch made for the entrance his mind was so fussed that he didn't notice anything until his feet collided with a rubber doormat in the outer lobby on it in white letters appeared the name of the house bell charmion not for mine thinks bill nothing with that tag to it will ever make a hit with me i'm on to my luck this time if i enter this cursed shack i'll be scun out of my clothes in a pinochle game or be arrested for blackmail or fall in love with a blonde chambermaid or pitch down the elevator well or something as fierce that name belcharmion is the wrong recipe for my health i found that out and so he turns out in a hurry thanking his stars that he'd found sense at last just as he reached the sidewalk somebody yelled look out and wing a forty-foot swing stage hit him on the top of the head for a ten weeks trip to the hospital again what did i tell you moral don't dally with the rule of three End of chapter 4 part 1